Hello and welcome to a horribly nerdy podcast, the podcast that's so bad, horrible is in its name. And on this podcast, we talk about everything from the paranormal to comic books to video games and much more. And since March is Women's History Month, I decided I'm going to be talking about influential women in certain genres. So we're going to talk about horror, video games, comic books, paranormal, and much more. Um, I totally dropped the ball. I should have did a uh, last month with Black History Month, and I should have did influential uh, African Americans in all kinds of genres. So we might do that next year. I'm sorry, we might do that next month. If not, I will certainly get to it uh, next February. I dropped the ball on that one, so I do apologize. So, I want to start out with a woman that we would not be talking about paranormal and the way we are if it wasn't for Eleanor Mildred Sidgwick. The leading figure and creator of the Society for Cyclical Research. Without this woman, we would not know the paranormal the way we do now. Uh, She is born uh, March 11th, 1845, and she passed away on February 10th, 1936. Uh, Known as Nora to her family and friends, she was a uh, physics research assisting Lord Riley, an activist for the higher education of women, principal of Newman College of the University of Cambridge, and a leading figure in the Society for Cyclical Research. So, why do we talk about Eleanor to this day? Well, most of her writings related to cyclical research and are contained in the Proceedings of the Society for Cyclical Research. However, some related to educational matters and a couple of essays dealt with the morality of international affairs. Sedgwick was highly critical of physical mediumship. Uh, In 1886 and 1887, a series of publications by S.J. Davey, Richard Hodgson, and Sedgwick in the Journal for the Society of Cyclical Research exposed the slate-writing tricks of the uh, the medium William Eggleton. Uh, Sedgwick regarded Eggleton to be nothing more than a clever conjurer. Uh, Due to the critical papers, Stanton Moist... Due to the critical papers... Due to the critical papers, Stanton Moses and other prominent spiritualist members resigned from the Society of Psychical Research in 1891. Alfred Russell Wallace requested for the Society to properly investigate spirit photography. Uh, Wallace had endorsed various spirit photographers as genuine. Sidgwick responded with her paper on spirit photographs, uh, which cast out on the subject and revealed the fraudulent members in re- Sidgwick responded with her paper on spirit photographs, which cast doubt on the subject and revealed the fraudulent methods that spirit photographers such as Edward Isidore Bouget, Frederick Hudson, and William H. Mulmer had utilized. Not only was she all about debunking some of these mediums and, and spirit photographers and all the fraudulent stuff, she also was all about proving strange high strangeness basically 
A good deal of her work was done for the society, and for the subject was done unknown to the membership at large, and out of her conscientious sense of duty. She helped a good deal with editorial matters and committee work, gave quiet private advice, was one of the much involved and considerable background work, went into the society's first major production, Phantasms of the Living. She was one of the centrally important committee responsible for overseeing and writing up the pioneer in large-scale census of hallucinations. She was honorary secretary from 1907 to 1932, a period which included World War I and the following years and naturally brought the society considerable problems. Uh, W.H. Salter, who himself honorary secretary for many years, concurred that when the secretary Isabel Newton that nobody but Eleanor Sedgwick could have carried the society through those difficult years with success. As with her administrative activities, so one suspects with her publications, a fair number of them have been undertaken not from enthusiasm, but from her persuasive sense of duty as something that needed doing and wouldn't get done properly if she didn't do it. This may well have been quite often true of her fairly numerous book reviews and her occasional responses to criticism of the society's publications. And it's hard to imagine it was not true also of some of her rather longer pieces. For instance, her 1887 article on spiritualism for the ninth edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica, her one volume abridgment of Phantoms Living, and the time-consuming but essential work she undertook in connection with the cross-correspondences by tabulating for each of the various automatists the date at which they first got to know the contents of each script of the others. The work was privately printed in 1921, but did not become generally available for some 50 years. Her earliest practical experiences in cyclical research had been, as mentioned above, in the 1870s with a group of friends of her brother, Arthur. Uh, this group included, or came to include, Henry Sidgwick, who she would make it. This group included, or came to include, Henry Sidgwick, who she would later marry, Frederick Myers, Edmund Gurney, Walter Leaf, her sister Evelyn, and the latter's husband, Lord Rayleigh. Over a period of several years, they held sittings with several mediums, some of who were or became famous. Most were cyclical mediums. And the overall effect on Eleanor was to impress her with the possibilities or actualities of fraud, inspiring particular caution as to that class of alleged phenomena. Not long after the foundation of the SPR, Eleanor Redwick published an account of these experiences, and in the same year she edited for publication various accounts sent to the Society's performances of William Eggleton, a cyclical medium then became cyclical medium then becoming well known. She made clear with reasons her firm conviction that these performances were all attributable to conjuring. He was faking it. Her opinions were strongly contested by spiritualists to whom she became something of a veteran noir, an attitude not helped by her Britannica article mentioned above or by her highly critical paper on spirit photography. She marked, however, at the end of her article on her own experiences, that is, it is not because I disbelieve in the physical phenomenon 
She remarked, however, at the end of her article on her own experiences that it is not because I disbelieve in the psychical phenomenon of spiritualism, but because I at present think it more probable that such things occasionally occur that I'm interested in estimating the evidence for them. Sidgwick's last practical involvements in the investigation of such phenomenon came in 1894 and 1895 when she joined with her husband and other leading members of the SBR in sittings in France and Cambridge with the celebrated Neapolitan with the celebrated Neapolitan medium Eusebia Palladino. The Sidgwicks were not convinced by anything they witnessed, and the sitting caused a great deal of controversy. So, basically what I'm trying to get at of why we talk about Eleanor Sidgwick is because she was one of the first to go out there and confront these people and instead of just saying, oh, this is believable, oh, they're really doing this, they're really doing that, she went as far as to do her best to disprove these frauds, to disprove these mediums. She employed various tactics she you know she did a lot of her research she did the work and if you're going to be a paranormal investigator you have to do the work and i highly recommend finding as many articles you can by eleanor read up on it not only does she go into detail about her experiences but about others she's contacted with and about how you can spot Eleanor paved the way for debunking, which has been highly, highly critical and needed in the paranormal phenomenon. And it just, in the whole spiel of things, I don't, there's a word I'm looking for here and I'm escaping it, but without that beginning of like, hey, I understand these people are saying this is true, this is that's true, da 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 da. Let's see what's really going on here. Let's get to the bottom of it. Without that, we still would be probably be believing these ectoplasmic uh, expulsions that is really just nylon and just cheese or cheesecloth, and it's just just craziness. There's so many, and one day we'll get into that. Just how mediums and and, and conjurers fake. The conjuring and stuff there they imply many magicians tricks and tricks and everything it's uh it's a whole thing and without eleanor beginning to look into all this stuff we wouldn't have debunking the way it is now highly recommend all of eleanor's articles as much as you can read she is a pioneer in the paranormal and uh, as a female back then yeah granted i The paranormal from paranormal field, the paranormal interest is, is, is for her to be a female back in these times when no one would listen to a woman, and she fought hard to get her opinions out there. I gotta give her credit, a thousand percent. Gotta back her up here. She did the work. She did her due diligence. And she went out there. And you cannot take that away from her. More power to you. Good for you. Amazing. And I'm so glad without Eleanor Sidgwick, we would not be where we're at today. We would 
he would still be doing table tipping and, and all this stupidness that just can be proven false. It's just without her, in my opinion, the paranormal field wouldn't be where it is. Let's talk video games. So, Carol Shaw is the first female game programmer and designer. Computer programmer Carol Shaw is best known for her work at Activision with the retro hit River Raid. But years before, Shaw had already made a name for herself in the history of video games. In 1978, she was the first woman to program and design a video game 3D tic-tac-toe for the Atari 2600. And I know that probably doesn't seem like a big deal, but honestly, that's a huge deal. Number one, for what the computer programmers had to do back in those, in the eight, early 80s and late 70s. Holy crap. And not only that, but being a female to do that, just years ahead of advancement and everything that we see nowadays. In 1983, the final game that Shaw completely programmed and designed herself, Happy Trails, released just as the video game market crashed. With the industry in shambles, Shaw took a break from making games but returned in 1988 to oversee the production of River Raid 2, her final swan song into the world of console gaming. Uh, next, we have Roberta Williams, the co-creator of graphical adventure games and Sierra. Roberta Williams was one of the most important figures in the history of video games. In 1979, Williams became inspired after playing the text-only computer game Adventure to put together and design a document that outlined an interactive game combining text with graphics. Her husband, Ken, a programmer at IBM, developed the software engine and tech using their Apple II home computer. Their game Mystery House was an instant hit and the graphical adventure genre was born. The couple formed the company Online Systems, later called Sierra, and became the dominating force in computer games. By the time William retired in 1996, she was credited with more than 30 top computer games, the majority of which she wrote and designed, including King's Quest and Phantasmagoria. Phantasmagoria is a point-and-click text-based well, not necessarily text-based. It's more of a point-and-click, very strange, supernatural, weird-ass game. And we will talk about Phantasmagoria one day because it's crazy. It goes from, like, 1 to 100 in a, in a matter of, of seconds. Like, it starts off really slow, and then when shit goes crazy, it goes crazy. Uh, next, we're going to talk about Donna Bailey, the first woman to design an arcade game. Determined to break into the game-making biz, Donna Bailey accepted position as an engineer at Atari in 1980. Carol Shaw had already left for Activision, so Bailey was the only female game designer at the company. While there, she co-created and designed, along with Ed Logg, the classic arcade hit Centipede. After its release to instant success, Bailey disappeared from the video game industry only to resurface 26 years later as a keynote speaker at the 2000 Women, 2007 Women in Games Conference. Bailey revealed it was the precious, 
It was the pressure and criticism from her male counterparts that drove her from the business. Today, Bailey encourages women to pursue career to pursue career in games. She works as a college instructor, teaching numerous courses about games design. And here's what sucks about the 80s is because you could be a strong, independent woman who is responsible for creating a, a classic hit that still is games are made about to this day. And this game is still reproduced and repackaged and re-released all the time. But yet, the criticism and pressure from a male finding her successful forced her to leave the business. Fucking bullshit. If you're a guy and you can't handle the success of a female, get the fuck out of here. I don't ever want to talk to you. I want to punch you right in your fucking face, you piece of shit. Anyways, and our lastly, we're going to talk about and Westfall, programmer and co-founder of Freefall Associates. Before Anne Westfall started working in games, before Anne Westfall started working in games, she was a brilliant programmer who created the first microcomputer-based program to structure subdivisions. In 1981, Westfall and her husband John Freeman formed Freefall Associates, the first independent developer contracted by Electronic Arts. Yes, the Electronic Arts. Among the games co-designed by Freeman and programmed by Westfall was the hit computer title Archon, which at the time was EA's biggest seller. In addition to her work as a programmer and developer, Westfall also served on the Game Developer Conference Board of Directors for six years. Westfall and Freeman renamed their company Freefall Games, although Westfall herself has spent the last several years as a medical transcriptionist. And we will definitely be going into more female-led uh, video game designers and stuff like that. We've got almost to talk about it, but that was a good chunk I wanted to get out of there because these women are responsible for some of the best games out there. They're responsible for pretty much making games what they are. Now, if they hadn't stepped up to the plate and knocked it out of the park, would we have the video games we have now? No. Let's talk some influential female authors, starting with Mary Shelley. That's right, Mary Shelley, who wrote one of the best horror fiction novels out there. Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus. And if you haven't read the book, I'm sure you've seen at least one of a thousand movie adaptations that there are out there. Of course, the Universal Monsters being the classic Frankenstein film. Mary Shelley is a fantastic author. She has done many, many works. She's very good at that gothic style writing. Uh, her mother had died less than a month after giving birth to her, and she was raised by her father, who provided her with a rich, informal education, encouraging her to adhere to his own anarchist political theories. When she was four, her father married a neighbor, Mary Jane Claremont, with whom Shelley came to have a troubled relationship. Uh, in 1814, Shelley began a romance with one of her father's political followers, Percy Bysshe Shelley, whom she also 
married. Uh, together with her stepsister, Claire Claremont, she and Percy left for France and traveled through Europe. Upon their return to England, Shelley was pregnant with Percy's child. Over the next two years, she and Percy faced ostracism, constant debt, and the death of their daughter, who was prematurely born. Uh, they married in late 1816 after the suicide of his first wife, Harriet. Uh, in 1816, the couple and Mary's stepsister famously spent a summer with Lord Byron and John William Polidori near Geneva, Switzerland, where Shelley conceived the idea for her novel, Frankenstein. The Shelleys left Britain in 1818 for Italy, where their second and third children died before Shelley gave birth to her last and only surviving child, Percy Florence Shelley. In 1822, her husband drowned when his sailing boat sank during a store near the Viarego. A year later, Shelley returned to England and from then on devoted herself to the upbringing of her son and a career as a professional author. The last decade of her life, unfortunately, was dogged by illness, most likely caused by the brain tumor which killed her in eight, at age 53. Uh, until 1970, Shelley's was mainly known for her work of Frankenstein, which remains widely read and has inspired many theatrical and film adaptations. Uh, recent scholarship has yielded a more comprehensive view of Shelley's achievements. Scholars have shown interestingly increasing in her literary output, particularly in her novels, which include the historical novels Valpegra and Perkin Warbeck, the apocalyptic novel The Last Man, and her final two novels Lodore and Faulkner. Studies of her lesser-known works, such as the travel book Rambles in Germany and Italy, and the bio biographical articles <laughs> and the biographical articles for Dionysus Lardner's Cabinet Cyclopedia support the growing view that Shelley remained a political radical throughout her life. Shelley's works often argue that cooperation and sympathy, particularly as practiced by women in the family, were the ways to reform civil society. This view was a direct challenge to the individualistic romantic ethos promoted by Percy Shelley and the Enlightenment political theories articulated by her father, William Godwin. She was born Mary Wollenstoff Craft Goodwin in Somerstown, London in 1797. She was the second child. She was the second child of the feminist philosopher, educator, and writer Mary Wollenstone Craft, and the first child of the philosopher, novelist, and journalist William Godwin. Uh, Wollencraft died of purpural fever shortly after Mary was born. Godwin was left to bring up Mary along with her older half-sister, Fanny Emily, Wollenstone's craft child by the American spectacular Gilbert Emley. A uh, year after Wollenstone's death, a year after Wollenstonecraft's death, Goodwin published his memoirs of the author of A Vindication of the Rights of Woman. Uh, which he intended as a sincere and compassionate tribute. However, because the memoirs revealed Wollenstonecraft's affairs and her illegitimate child, they were seen as shocking. Mary Godwin read these memoirs and her mother's books and was brought up to cherish her mother's memory. 
Mary's early Mary's earliest years were happy, judging from the letters of William Godwin's housekeeper and nurse, Louisa Jones. But Godwin was often deeply in debt, feeling that he could not raise the children by himself. He cast about for a second wife. In December 1801, he married Mary Jane Claremont, a well-educated woman with two young children of her own, Charles and Claire. Most of Godwin's friends disliked his new wife, describing her as quick-tempered and quarrelsome. But Godwin was devoted to her, and the marriage was a success. Mary Godwin, on the other hand, came to detest her stepmother. Uh, William Godwin's 19th century biographer Charles Keegan Paul later suggested that Mrs. Godwin had favored her own children over those of Mary Wool Stonecraft. I've probably said that name 15,000 times wrong. It's Wool Stonecraft, not Woolen Stonecraft or Wallen Stonecraft. It's Wool Stonecraft. Together, the Godwins started a publishing firm called M.J. Godwin, which sold children's books as well as stationery, maps, and games. However, this business did not turn a profit, and Godwin was forced to borrow substantial sums to keep it going. He continued to pay off earlier loans, compounding his problem. By 1809, oh, I'm sorry, he continued to borrow to pay off earlier loans, compounding his problems. By 1809, Godwin's business was close to failure, and he was near to despair. Godwin was saved by debtor's prison by philosophical, by philosophical Godwin was saved Godwin was saved from debtor's prison by philosophical devotees such as Francis Place who lent him further money Though Mary Godwin received a little formal education, her father tutored her in a broad range of subjects. He often took the children on educational outings, and they had access to his library and the many intellectuals who visited him, including the romantic poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge and the former vice president of the United States, Aaron Burr. Godwin admitted he was not educating the children according to Mary Wollstonecraft's philosophy as outlined in works such as A Vindication of the Rights of Woman, but Mary Godwin nonetheless received an unusual and advanced education for a girl of the time. She had a governess, a daily tutor, and read many of her father's children's books on Roman and Greek history and manuscript. Uh, for six months in 1811, she also attended a boarding school in Ramsgate. Her father described her at age 15 as singularly bold, somewhat imperious, and active of mind. Her desire of knowledge is great, and her perseverance in everything she undertakes almost invincible. Uh, Mary Shelley was a pioneer for women's rights. I mean, especially back in the 1800s when women's rights really were not thought about. The fact that she continued to be this aggressive and bold and probably one of the most famous authors, female authors of the time, and even to this day one of the most famous female authors of time, just shows how what an impact that that novel made on society. While her husband Perry encouraged her writing, the extent of Percy's contribution to the novel is unknown and has been argued over by readers and critics. Mary Shelley wrote, I certainly did not owe the suggestion of one incident, nor scarcely of one train of feeling to my husband, and yet, but for his incitement, it would have never taken the form in which it was presented to the world. She wrote that the preface to first edition was Percy's work, as far as I can recollect. 
There are differences in the 1818, 1823, and 1831 editions which have been attributed to Percy's editing. James Reeker concluded Percy's assistance at every point in the book's manufacture was so extensive that one hardly knows whether to regard him as editor or minor collaborator. While Anne K. Mellor later argued Percy only made many technical corrections and several times clarified the narrative and thematic continuity of the text. Charles E. Robinson, editor of a facsimile edition of the Frankenstein Manuscripts, concluded that Percy's contributions to the book were no more than what most publishers, editors have provided new or old authors, or, or in fact, what colleagues have provided to each other after, each, after reading each other's works and progress. Writing on the 200th anniversary of Frankenstein, literary scholar and poet Fiona Sampson asked, why hasn't Mary Shelley gotten the respect she deserves. She noted in recent she noted that in recent years Perry's corrections visible in the Frankenstein notebooks held at the Book Bodleian Library in Oxford have been seized on as evidence that he must have at least co-authored the novel. In fact, when I examined the notebooks myself, I realized that Percy rather did rather less than any line editor working in publishing today. Uh, Samplin's published her findings in In Search of Mary Shelley, one of many biographies written by written about Shelley. So yes, Mary Shelley, even though yeah she's one of the most famous, a lot of people contribute Percy to writing the novel, but no, it was in fact Mary Shelley who wrote the novel, and it is a masterpiece. And if you haven't read it, I highly suggest you read it, and if you're not into reading and you like audible books or audiobooks, there is a version on Audible, and it is fantastic, extremely well done. The narrator does an amazing job. Stephanie Rothman, born November 9th, 1936 in Patterson, New Jersey, is an American film director, producer, and screenwriter known for her low-budget independent exploitation horror films made in the 1960s and 1970s, especially The Student Nurses in 1970 and Terminal Island in 1974. Her early life, Rothman was her early life, Rothman was raised in Los Angeles and studied sociology at UC Berkeley. She says she became interested in filmmaking after seeing The Seventh Seal, made in 1957. What is still my favorite film of all time, I didn't at that point know how to become a filmmaker. I didn't even think it was possible. When I saw it, I thought to myself, this is what I would like to do. I would like to make a film like this. Highly thoughtful European-like small films. I wanted to be a writer-director. From 1960 to 1963, Rothman studied filmmaking at the University of Southern California, where she was mentored by the chairman of the cinema department, Bernard Cantor. She became the first woman to be awarded the Directors Guild of America Fellowship, awarded annually to the director of a student film. This, along with her academic qualifications, garnered her a job offer from Roger Corman in 1964 to work as his assistant. Corman chose her over an applicant who would later become his wife, Julie. It was rare for anyone who did not have family connections to find employment in the film industry in or outside of the jurisdiction of the labor union, recalled Rothman later. It was even rarer for a woman to be hired. It was traditional to exclude us from nearly all types of work behind the camera. Rothman worked in a variety of jobs for Corman on films such as 
Beach Ball in 1965, Voyage to the Prehistoric Planet in 1965, and Queen of Blood in 1966. Rothman had this to say, I did everything, write new scenes, scout locations, cast actors, direct new sequence, and edit final cuts. It was a busy, exhilarating time. Roger did not teach me these skills, I learned them in film school, but he did share his greater experience with me, giving me useful criticism and equally important information on how to efficiently organize work on the set so that a film could be shot on schedule. The schedules he set were much shorter than those of the major studios. Since it was his own money he was using, Roger did not want a film to go over schedule or over budget. He taught me a valuable lesson in psychology. He encouraged me often, expressing his confidence in my abilities, and therefore I tried to do the best work for him that I could do. Corman had Rothman reshoot large segments of the movie that became Bloodbath. I shot about another 30 minutes of original footage, and it was made into what I only call a mishmash, she recalls. Unintended joint collaboration would be a more accurate way of putting it. She and Jack Hill shared directorial credit for the film. Her work impressed Corman enough to give her her full. Her work impressed Corman enough to give her her first full-time directing job on *It's a Bikini World*, shot in 1965 but not released until 1967, which he financed. However, she did not enjoy the experience. I became very depressed after making *It's a Bikini World*. I had very ambivalent feelings about continuing to be a director if that's all I was going to be able to do. So I literally went into kind of a retirement for several years until more than anything in the world, I wanted to make films. Uh, Rothman would re return to filmmaking on Gorman's, on Corman's comedy Gas, working as a production associate. In 1970, Corman established his new production and distribution company, New World Pictures, and hired Rothman to write and direct its second film, The Student Nurses, about the adventures of four young nursing students. Although an exploitation movie, Rothman, Rothman was given creative freedom to explore political and social issues which interested her, such as abortion and immigration. The Student Nurses was a considerable hit leading to a cycle of nurse films and helping establish New World as a viable commercial force. Hence, without Rothman, we would not have some of the Corman films from New World Pictures that we do. She was able to make turn this small movie into a hit with her incredible abilities. Rothman says when she made the film, she was unaware it was an exploitation film until she read a review describing it as much. I had never heard that term before, Roger never used it, so that's how I learned that I had made an exploitation film. Then I went and did some research to find out exactly what exploitation films were their history, and so forth, and then I knew that's what I was doing, because I was making low-budget films, they were transgressive in that they were showed more extreme things than what a studio showed film <laughs> I had never heard that term before. Roger never used it, so that's how I learned that I had made an exploitation film. Then I went and did some research to find out exactly what exploitation films were, their history, and so forth. And then I knew that's what I was doing because I was making low-budget films that were transgressive and that they showed more extreme things than what would be shown in a studio film, and whose success depended on their advertising because they had no stars in them. 
It was dismaying to me, but at the same time, I decided to make the best exploitation films I could, if that was going to be on my lot, and then, if that was going to be my lot, then that's what I was going to try to do with it. Rothman turned down Corman's offer to make a sequel to Student Nurses and a woman in prison film, The Big Dollhouse, because she was not enthusiastic about either project. Instead, she directed The Velvet Vampire for New World, which has become a cult hit, although it was a commercial disappointment. Rothman and her husband, Charles S. Schwartz, left Corman in the early 1970s to help set up Dimension Pictures. While there, she did not receive greater creative freedom of the opportunity to leave the exploitation field. However, she did receive more money and owned a small share of the company. Uh, Corman wouldn't pay me anything, said Rothman. No, he paid people very little, and Charles and I had to make a living. We were offered better pay at Dimension Pictures, so we left for Dimension. The pull for that was economic. It was not ideological. Rotter is ideologically quite progressive when it comes to money. He is much more conscious. Let's put it tactfully that way. Roger, or sorry, Rothman directed three films for, for Dimension, Group Marriage, Terminal Island, and The Working Girl. She also wrote the script for Beyond Atlantis. The films that Rothman directed, Group Marriage in particular, placed emphasis on female as well as male desire. Uh, stated in a 1973 interview, Rothman says, I'm very tired of the whole tradition in Western art in which women are always presented nude and men aren't. I'm not going to dress the women and undress men, that would be a form of tortured vengeance, but I am certainly going to undress men, and the result is probably a more healthy environment, because one group of people presenting another in a vulnerable, weaker, more servile position is always distorted. Film director and historian Fred Olin Ray later claimed that the best movies made by Dimension were the in-house productions from Rothman and Swartz. Rothman says, I didn't always get to choose the subjects of the film, but I did have control over the attitude toward the treatment of the subjects. In this respect, I didn't feel compromised or constrained. Of course, there were certain audience expectations that had to be satisfied, in particularly for nudity and violence. Since I was making exploitation films with unknown casts, I had to show more nudity than they could ordinarily see in major studio film, but less than that in soft porn that was then in the release. Furthermore, I had to show up the limit of what was allowed in rated R film, i.e. no pubic hair, no genitals, no simulated intercourse, which looks quite tame by today's standard, but wasn't at the time. Because of these scenes, I also had to cast a very attractive people, which means that sometimes I couldn't cast the very best actors, which I considered a various constraint, that, a very serious constraint then, and which continues to disturb me now when she was interviewed in 2010. Rothman and Swartz left Dimension in 1975. She tried to break out of the exploitation field, but struggled. I had good agents, and together we tried very hard to get me work, but we repeatedly discovered I was stigmatized by the films I had made. The, iron the irony was that I made them in order to prove that I had skills to make more ambitious films, but no one would give me the chance. Then there was no other reason, the so-called elephant in the room, I was a woman. No one told me directly, but I often learned indirectly that this was the decisive reason why many producers wouldn't agree to meet me. If that sounds exaggerated, remember that I worked in the American film history, that I worked in the American film <coughs> industry from 1965 to 1974, and some of those years I was the only woman, woman directing feature films. She later elaborated, I couldn't get any work in television. 
no one would even meet me. When it came to feature films, I was once invited by an executive at MGM to go and meet her, which was in the days when there were very few filmmakers at all. I went and met her and she said to me, we were in a story meeting yesterday, we were getting a new script ready for a first time director we want to use and we were talking about the fact that it would like that we would like it to be a vampire film something you know like the velvet vampire that stephanie rothman made my response when i heard that was well if you want a vampire film like stephanie rothman made why don't you get stephanie rothman rothman sold a script car hops which was later filmed as star hops but it was changed to such a degree that rothman took her name off of it uh, there are stories that she reshot sections of Ruby, what Rothman says they are not true. Uh, Curtis Harrington did say she sought some additional scenes for TV relief. Rothman did sign a three-picture deal with the producer, but no films resulted. In 1978, Rothman said she still hoped to make a major, a major motion picture. I never give up hoping. If I hang in there long enough, my time will come. However, she is not cre credited on a feature film after 1978. Her legacy. Feminist writers, especially Pam Cook and Claire Johnson, have noted Rothman's role creating feminist films in the exploitation genre. Cook stated that Rothman often parried, parodied the codes of the exploitation genre to expose their roots in male fantasies and so undermine them. And it is this use of formal play to subvert male myths of women that he has interested some feminists, and that has been argued places Rossman's work inside the traditions of women's counter cinema. Terry Curtis Fox stated that without stretching a point too greatly, one can see the influence of this feminism and such recurrent Rothman themes such as the reorganization of society and the extension of options to otherwise disenfranchised individuals. A classic liberal, Rothman states her themes wholly in terms of dispar desperate, disparate individuals who needs propel to... A classic liberal, Rothman states her themes wholly in terms of disparate individuals who needs propel them to make a common bond. Despite a growing bitterness in her later work, Rothman's films are not so much a cinema of social problems as one of social solutions. More than anything else, and perhaps even more commercially damning uh, work than working in restrictive genres. Sorry, I lost my place there. Rothman's films are contemporary comedies of manners centered around attitudes around the way the style serves as both an expression of a screen and of a meaning. She may be a graduate of the Roger Corman School of Filmmaking, but her real model is Preston Sturgis. A pioneer in filmmaking, Stephanie Rothman started out in horror, went to exploitation, and unfortunately was never fully given the credit she was due. She had a unique perspective. She had a way of looking things. It's just very unfortunate that this is what would happen in that day and age because she was a woman. She wasn't looked at with the proper respect she deserved. It's unfortunate she never got to make a masterpiece that she always wanted to. Hopefully one day we can rectify that situation. Thank you all so much for tuning in to this episode of A Horribly Nerdy Podcast. Uh, again, this is different. Uh, normally, this is definitely a different format than what I'm normally doing, but I want to kind of educate people on 
you know, different things, of course. That's what this is all about, is, is putting thought bullets and thought stuff into your brain to kind of get you to think about stuff. And especially for how long women have been subjugated and just spit on, in my opinion, from the male perspective. That's why I want to do this whole month on females in amazing genres, nerdy genres. There are so many female nerds out there now than when I was in high school. Maybe they were secretly nerds, I have no idea. I was always the nerd that was picked on. Of course, now you have females that are, are super nerdy, they're super awesome, and I love them all. <laughs> and anyone that's a nerd, I love you, you're awesome, you're great. Thank you. But, Women's History Month, we will continue on next week. Uh, this one was mainly focused on, uh, well, I shouldn't say mainly focused. We talked about a few people here and there. Um, video games was kind of the main focus on this one. Um, next week, I'm going to do a lot more women and uh, author, or, or uh, a lot more female authors and horror and female uh, filmmakers and actresses and stuff like that. Uh, there's quite a bit I want to talk about, so we're definitely going to cover that next week. And then I think the week after that, I want to focus on a lot more women in the paranormal. So we'll definitely go on the history, you know, their, their early life, their daily life, and the impact they made on paranormal society. Thank you all again so much for tuning in. And please let me know if you're enjoying this. Uh, let me know what to tweak and stuff like that. I really appreciate it. See you all next week.